This episode of the Behind the Shield podcast is brought to you by 5.11 Tactical, a company that I've used for well over a decade, and they are offering you a 15% discount on every order. And I will tell you that code in just a moment, but I want to do another product highlight. And I can testify, as with the other ones, through personal experience. I wore a 5.11 uniform way back when I worked for Anaheim Fire in California, so we're talking 13 years ago, and I know for a fact that some of my brothers and sisters I work with still wear some of the clothes that they were given when I was hired there, so some of the job shirts, jackets, and this really kind of resonated with me because I realized so many of the departments I've worked at, there are men and women with lockers crammed with old, worn, frayed uniform. And that really represents wasted budget. So to have uniforms with durability means that you don't have to purchase them as often. Now you can apply that budget elsewhere. Another area they've really focused on is redesigning their women's first responder uniforms. I am a skinny six foot tall man and some of these uniforms I'm issued literally hang off me like a trash bag. And I can imagine it's even worse being a female first responder. So they have really taken that into account and redesigned the cuts so they're far more flattering to the female firefighter, first responder, medic, etc. On top of that, several departments I work for have gone from job shirts to polo shirts. 5.11 has those. And then to underline a product I've already talked about, they have the footwear. I wore the CST slip-on boot for a long time from 5.11. And now the Norris sneaker that you've heard me talk about is a lightweight duty boot that puts far less pressure on the ankles and knees, the back, etc. So as I mentioned before, they are offering you guys a continuous 15% discount. And all you have to do is use the code SHIELD at checkout at 511tactical.com. So once again, code SHIELD at 511tactical.com. Welcome to episode 308 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome on the show firefighter and creator of Next Rung, Blake Stinnett. Now, this conversation I think is extremely important and pertinent at the moment for a couple of reasons. Firstly, going into this pandemic, the first responder profession, and I'm sure that extends to correction and medical and so many other professions, we're seeing a huge increase in suicides. Now, I don't know if it's just the suicides themselves, it's an increase in reporting, but regardless, we are made aware of this epidemic of mental health that we're seeing at the moment. And then add another layer to that, the isolation, which some people are thriving in, let's be honest, but some people definitely will be struggling, whether it's the isolation itself, whether it's the high call load, whether it's the things that they've seen, the inability to save... So conversations like this need to be had. And I'm so glad that Blake is not only having those conversations, but he's also bringing solutions to the problem. So you guys need to listen to this conversation. Before we get to the interview, like I always say, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this podcast on, hit subscribe, that way you know when the new episodes come out, leave feedback, I love reading the feedback on the show, and then most importantly, leave a rating. Each five-star rating we get makes us a little bit more visible to people looking for a podcast like this. And as I mentioned over and over again, this is a free library for you, the audience, to do whatever you want to do with it. So all I ask in return for these men and women giving their life story, their life's work on this podcast is that you be part of the solution and help share these episodes. Every single man and woman on this podcast has a story that will literally change people's lives. So the more ear holes we can get this to, the more people we can help. So with that being said, I introduce to you Blake Stinnett. Enjoy.
thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, man. I'm excited about it. Yeah, and we've been talking about this for a while. I've been watching what you've been doing. Um, uh, yeah, there's like two two camps, isn't there? There's five, 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 and there's an X rung that you see both doing a lot of good things. A lot of people attaching themselves to those organizations. Um, but I want to start obviously at the very beginning. We'll work through to to the genesis of that. Uh, where are we finding you on planet Earth today? So I'm in Georgia, just outside of Atlanta, um, about an hour or so, about 45 minutes rather, outside of Atlanta in Covington. Brilliant. Now, uh, first question then, where were you born and what was your family dynamic like? Yeah, man. So I was born in Gwinnett County um, and family dynamic, man. I was uh, man until the age of three. My parents were married and then my parents got a divorce. and um, from that point forward, I didn't. I saw my dad one time after my parents got divorced, and my mom actually ended up getting remarried a few years later. So family dy- dynamic was a little bit different, you know. I guess maybe not too different for now because so many people get divorced. But um, you know, I, I didn't have a relationship with my biological father growing up, so that was a little bit different. But my mom, like I said, she did get remarried. I uh, had two older brothers as well, and um, the the guy that my mom remarried, the man that my mom remarried is, is who I call my dad. He adopted me and my two older brothers and we took his last name and we kind of, you know, went from there. It was great childhood though. I definitely can't complain about it and thankful for my mom and my dad and, and you know, who they, I guess, drove me to be as a person. So, um, but yeah, that's kind of it in a nutshell. That is brilliant. My uh, my my son's mother. I'm divorced. He was actually about three when that happened, but obviously I stay completely in the picture with him. Um, her father basically left when she was five, and she was the only child, and went off and started a new family somewhere else. And I see the ongoing effects of that. You know, the trauma, and she never really went to to see anyone. You know, but it's it's really starting to make me realize and even seeing you know what my little boy's gone through um i think we downplay the effects of divorce especially if you know in in your case where a parent actually leaves because that really does subconsciously send a message you know that that you weren't good enough to stay around you know which, which is completely wrong but there there's there's a lot of trauma in that and so just because it happens a lot doesn't mean that it's not leaving a big effect absolutely yeah you're exactly right, man. My brother and I were talking about that the other day. He <clears throat> he came over and worked out in the garage. I have my garage outfitted and I uh, have a membership at a CrossFit gym as well, but it's nice just to be able to step outside. But we were talking about that a little bit as well and, you know, just some of the impacts of that. And it's, uh, it's definitely different and you don't think about it a whole lot until you get a little bit older. I, you know, I'm, I'm 31 and you start to think about that stuff a little bit more and, just kind of wonder at times, you know, like why, you know, what was the reason behind that and kind of what was going on there and just trying to figure out some of that stuff. Yeah, no, it is. And I think, you know, the understanding that and and, and being aware of that, especially in, in our profession where you're going to pile on more trauma through your career, you know, it's important to, to see that. I, I literally, I've talked about this, I don't know, probably the last month. I had a an epiphany when I was trying to get this book that I'm writing done 
um, that I was in a house fire when I was five. I almost died in my granddad's house. I totally forgot. Wow. Like, I had buried that so deeply. I literally forgot. And I've been a fireman for, you know, 14 years. So it's, it's amazing how some of these areas that we're going to talk about may be buried so deeply. You, you literally don't even consider them when you look at your mental health. Right. So you, you mentioned about your, your dad, you know, your, your, on paper stepdad but your real father so what is what did he and your mother do career-wise my dad was a truck driver uh he worked for a company called quickcrete and so as you probably see it in home depot lows things like that it's just the the sack concrete that you can utilize around the house things like that um so he he's always done that he, he delivered that for years and he was actually a volunteer firefighter as well the county that i live in currently is actually where i ended up growing up and it was completely completely volunteer uh until the time i guess i went into high school is when they started bringing around career firemen and they offered him a job to be able to do that it just didn't pay enough you know he wouldn't he wasn't gonna wasn't gonna be able to to take care of the family financially if he were to make that choice. So he had decided just to you know, continue volunteering in that aspect. So yeah, but he, he drove a truck and, um, you know, was always there for us, you know, I mean, always got off when he needed to get off and was, you know, always, you know, great about being there as a father. And he wanted just to continue to provide for us in that way, but he absolutely loved the fire service and, and still talks about it to this day that, man, he's like, I just wish I would have made that jump, you know, to see if it would have worked. Um, and then for my mom, she was a stay at home mom from my middle school years all the way until currently she still stays at home. They have, um, adopted, um, children as well. So I have adopted siblings, so she's still at home with them. It's uh, a little bit different dynamic. Uh, my dad actually had a stroke two years ago, and he's unable to work or anything like that. So she's kind of, you know, tending to him, taking care of him, and also taking care of my adopted siblings. So it's it's um, it's pretty different and pretty stressful at times. But she manages to get through and does a really good good job at that. So um, you know, props to her for continuing to be able to to make it through some of the. I guess the chaos and the craziness that comes along with, with all the things that have happened. But yeah, so she, I mean, she worked a little bit growing up, but it was, you know, different jobs here and there. Um, the one I remember the most is she worked for a doctor's office, um, in the front office, up, you know, taking care of paperwork and things like that. So, but, um, I guess probably my sixth or seventh grade year, she stayed home. And, and from that point on, that's what she did. She stayed at home and, took care of us and took care of my dad and, and all those wonderful things. So that was nice as well. Well, firstly, I'm sorry to hear about your dad. Um, it's it's amazing how many younger men that I know have had strokes. There's uh, Chief Jim Walsh and my friend Bull. And, you know, luckily, Jim's doing very well considering the, the huge severity of his and Bull, you know, really was able to overcome his um, you know, definitely a lesser, lesser type of stroke than, than Jim. But how's your father doing as far as um, the deficits? Uh, the deficits are, you know, they're, they're pretty permanent for the most part. I mean, he's, he's gained some of it back, you know, and, and as the time continues on and he continues to improve in little ways he's able to get around the house, he's able to, you know, kind of tend to himself. Uh, but you know, it's just hard it's, you know, and, and that's been his thing. He's like, man, I went from, and, and he literally was, 
a dad that could do everything. You know, like you hear people talk about their their fathers and that they could fix anything or build anything. He was he was that dad, you know, and never ever had to worry about, you know, going somewhere to get something done. I could always go to him. He could help me and things like that. So that's probably been the hardest part for him is just going from being able to do pretty much anything that he could ever want to do and take care of to, to not being able to do a whole lot of other than, you know, just kind of get around the house and, and, you know, he can get in the golf cart and ride around with my, my brother and, and my siblings and things like that. But, um, it's, it's definitely challenging for him, you know, because he's, he's one of those people who's very active and hands on. So, uh, but the deficits, you know, are, you know, uh, you know, a lot of them have, I guess, were more permanent because he had a, um, he had two strokes. He had the first one, uh, and he was actually recovering from it. And I was sitting with him in the hospital. He was supposed to be going home either that evening or the next morning. And while I was actually sitting there with him, he had a hemorrhagic stroke. Um, and they had to go and do emergency surgery, take a, a portion of his skull out and things like that. So that was, uh, you know, different man, because I've seen that stuff in the field, you know, being a firefighter and paramedic and you, you don't think a whole lot of it, I guess, but sitting there and that happening to your dad was pretty impactful. Um, something that I think about quite often after the fact and, uh, you know, it's, um, it's scary because you kind of know what's going on, but it's also, I guess, comforting in a way because you know what's going on. I don't know how to explain it. It's different when it comes to your family, obviously, and your kids and your wife and, and all those things. But, um, yeah, so it's, it's been a wild ride, but you know, he's, he's doing better over the past, you know, really the past year, some of the things that he's been able to improve on, you know, bending down and picking things up and <clears throat> things like that. So it's, uh, it's good, man. You know, he's, he's just thankful to be here, thankful to be alive and you know, thankful that God kept him around to, you know, see his family. So definitely, definitely, um, different, but he's grateful to be here. Yeah. Well, I mean, that that's, like I said, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that, but I guess if you're going to have one, that the hospital is probably the best one to have, uh, the best place to have one at least. And, and Jim talked about his crew actually brought him like a funny helmet that he had to wear when he had the piece of the skull missing. So did your yeah. dad, dad have the same thing? He did, man. We put stickers all over it. I gave him <laughs> some next rung stickers and, you know, he was just slapping stickers on that thing. So yeah, he had to wear that for quite a while. Yeah. That's crazy. Literally. I think he said, he told uh, someone, you know, he had to go to hospital and they're saying, oh, you know, what's, what are you having done? He said, getting my skull put back on. And it must be kind yeah. of weird to, t- to hear that when someone says. <laughs> yeah. But um, all right. Well, transitioning, um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm glad that your your dad's doing better. Um, when you were young, obviously, you you seem like you're in shape. You just talked about the, the gym and the CrossFit gym. Um, I think that a lot of people with home gyms are probably very happy that they set one up now. Um, Absolutely. What did you do as as a young man as far as athletics? Uh, as a young man, I played soccer and I played football. Um, and I, I played a little bit of baseball growing up. Um, but I guess before, right before I went to middle school, I actually set my friend's yard on fire. And my mom pulled me out of baseball that year and I never, I never played again. So I played baseball for a little while, but that, that career ended early because of, uh, uh, being a pyro, I guess. I don't know. Um, (laughs) it was embarrassing for him too, because, you know, it was all volunteer and they saw the truck rolling by and they're like, where are they going? So they followed, you know, my dad got in the truck and followed and I was out there with a a garden hose, putting the fire out, you know, and 
and I was successful. I put it out. Uh, I guess it just kind of runs in me, you know, to, to be putting fires out. But no, I played baseball, played soccer, and I played football. So those were the things that I did. I, you know, I never really found myself outside of those sports, you know, really working out a whole lot. Um, and that was, you know, pretty apparent uh, after I graduated high school. So, um, from the time I graduated high school to the time I got married, I, I went from 190 pounds to 250 almost. So, uh, working out wasn't a huge thing. I guess it was just the activities that I did while, you know, playing sports and things like that. So, um, yeah, that was, uh, definitely a little bit different. So I'm definitely the healthiest now that I have been and definitely the, you know, the best physical shape I've ever been. So that, that was a journey as well, man. I went from, you know, 200 and almost 50 pounds back down to right now, I weigh 188, 189. So, um, that was quite the journey as well. And I didn't, I didn't decide to do that until my daughter turned, she was, I guess, turning two. And I was like, I cannot be this dad. And this is before I actually got into the fire service. And, uh, I was like, man, I, I can't, I saw a picture of myself is what it was. So I was like, is that what I really look like? And from that point forward, I decided that I was going to be better and start eating healthier and start working out and have it look back. And that's been about seven, eight years ago. So brilliant. So, so talk, let's unpack that for a second. So what were the changes that you made that worked? The changes for me that worked was, Really, I, I mean, I ate out a good bit before my wife and I got married. So we started dating towards the end of my high school, and so from from that point forward, I, you know, I quit I quit running all the time because I wasn't playing soccer anymore, and just kind of kept eating the same that I'd been eating. And I lived by myself, so I was eating out a, a good bit because it was cheaper than going out and fixing something or preparing my own meal. And so, really, for me, it was just going from eating out as often as I was to fixing meals that were healthy, you know, so just lean meats and veggies. And, and I mean, that was, that was it, you know, just making that healthy move for me. And, and obviously working out is going to be a big part of that. And and I was active. I wasn't, you know, just a, a slob on the couch or anything like that. I mean, I'd go out and run or work out a little bit, but I changed from, you know, just a regular workout to going to CrossFit. And that was a, a big help in that as well. And, so I guess the conjunction of those two things together was really what led to that. So um, definitely, definitely thankful for it and thankful for, you know, seeing and realizing just how important your, your physical health is and how much better you feel. And it's, um, it's great. You know, I couldn't imagine life now without that stuff, without, you know, being conscious of what I eat, you know, having that flexible diet, you know, because, there's things that you want to eat and there's fun things that you, you know, partake in, but it's just realizing that, you know, when you can just making those healthy choices for yourself and also, you know, being physically fit as far as working out and, you know, allowing that to be a part of your life and the importance of it there, not only for the job now, but just for, you know, your overall physical health and, and for your family. Yeah, yeah, it's it's great to hear. I, I've noticed a correlation, especially over here. Um, and there's there's a reason why it's more over here. Where I grew up, you know, in England, we would play sports in school, and not normally it wasn't the same level. Like we weren't the elite athletes that you see more in you know school, and then especially like college level sports over here because there wasn't any money. No, no one was paying to watch 
you know, 15 year olds play football on TV. <laughs> but I mean, here they'll, they'll watch what eight year old little leaguers playing. Um, so, which is brilliant though. So you have this high level, as long as it's not overtraining, as long as it's not, you know, shitty coaching and these, these kids are blowing out knees and shoulders. Um, it's a great thing. But then I've noticed end of high school, end of college, whatever level people get to, so many of them just drop off and they go from mm-hmm. this quarterback, this, you know, pitcher, whatever it was to, to nothing. And I see like, like, for example, ice hockey, people seem to keep playing that, especially, you know, up in the, the north. And in England, yeah. people keep playing football a lot of times. So they'll, they'll join local town or village leagues and they'll, they'll keep playing or they'll, you know, go to the park and put some, some jerseys down and just use them as goals. But we here in, in the US, and I'm, I'm hoping it's going to change now because of Spartan races and CrossFit gyms and all these things that we're, we're seeing come up again now. But it used to be like amazing athlete and then, you know, kind of, the 30s like late 20s early 30s people would be like you said they look at a picture of themselves like that's not the athlete that i used to be in school so that's mm-hmm. an interesting thing i think for us as a culture is to figure out how we can you know look around the world and see how how other cultures do it better as far as maintaining that incredible health that you had when you were in college or school right yeah you're exactly right it's it's a huge thing and some colleges do you know if, if students go off to college they have, you know, intramural sports and, and things, uh, you know, for them to get involved in. But like you said, if, if you don't make that journey or if you don't go to, to school or, you know, decide to go into a career, I mean, there are, you know, few and far between places, you know, where you can go and, and get into either, you know, a co-ed sport, uh, you know, whether that's, you know, soccer or, you know, softball or whatever you know, the, that's offered around, but you're right. There's, there's not a whole lot of that offered anymore, but I think CrossFit, like you said, CrossFit and some of these races that they're putting out encourages people to, to be a part of that. I know it encouraged me a lot. I love the community aspect of CrossFit and I I have a garage gym and and I did that for about three years. I started CrossFit outfit in my garage, started working out here but the community aspect of that that drives me, it, it drew me back to going, you know, to to my local box and being a part of that. And I couldn't imagine, you know, not not being there, not being a part of those, um, you know, that team in, in, in those people's lives, just because I love hanging out with people and I love being challenged by other people because it, it pushes me to be better. And and now I find myself, you know, challenging myself in in, in more ways than I ever would have. Yeah, yeah, and I agree that the, the community element is is huge, and I think that's what's probably hurting a lot of people. Like I know my CrossFit gym is absolutely one of my tribes, hands down. I coach there, and I'm an athlete there as well. Um, and I did the same thing. I for years I worked at the YMCA, worked out at the YMCA, excuse me, doing the CrossFit main site, and I did it. You know, I would kill myself. People, you know, before people knew what CrossFit was, they would be like, "What the hell is that guy doing?" And I'd be lying, you know, <laughs> literally, like <laughs> they'd be worried about me. Um, but then when I actually joined the gym, I realized, okay, now, now I get the piece that's missing, which is that, that community. Cause not only are you held accountable, you're standing next to a bunch of people doing the same thing as you, you, you know, you have people that are watching you. So you have these coaches, if you're in the right gym that really do know what they're talking about and, and yes. can help you with, with your, your movements. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I agree a hundred percent and that's where the value is, I think in, in these membership versus, uh, 
you know, Planet Fitness or whatever, where you just got into a staffless facility um, and just playing with machines. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. So career-wise then, um, you mentioned the, when you lost some of the weight is when you entered the fire service. So what were your career aspirations when you were in school? In school, towards the end of high school, I, I really thought about the fire service a lot because I grew up around it and, and I enjoyed it and I, I thought it was a great career. Uh, I was conflicted between two things and kind of stayed conflicted up until I, I made the choice to move into the, the fire service. Um, I had actually tried to do it one time before I actually was successful, but um out of high school into college, I actually went into ministry and, and did that full time. So I um, actually have an undergrad in psychology and then I have a master's in theological studies. And I really love my time doing ministry. I work with uh, kids. I work with students. So I work with, with kids from the age of kindergarten all the way through high school. And then I work with families, obviously, just because uh, of the the natural tie there. So, you know, talking with parents, talking with kids. Uh, but so I did kids ministry, I did youth ministry and I absolutely love that. And, and think it's, you know, one of the, the greatest jobs ever. It's really a huge draw for me just because I love people. I love working with people. I love seeing the improvement of life there and, and what that has to offer. But, uh, ministry, I did that for eight years and twice during that, or uh, yeah, technically twice, uh, there were times where I found myself being drawn back to the fire service. I'd always wanted to be a part of it and always wanted to serve in that way. Um, not only just to serve the community, but I wanted to serve the people around me, the, the people that I would be working with. But I knew that I wouldn't be able to do that unless I was actually a firefighter myself. So in 2010, I tried, I guess from 2009 to 2010, I tried to get into the fire service and that's kind of when the economy hit, um, you know, the, the bottom of the tank and everything just kind of went to hell in a handbasket for a moment, you know, just with, with everything. So there were hiring freezes. I got to a couple of departments and made it to the top, you know, it was just waiting for a call back. And then they, you know, did these hiring freezes and was really disappointed at that, at that moment. So, uh, you know, from that point forward, I, I volunteered for a couple of years. I was like, well, if I can't do it on the career side and I can't get paid to do this as, you know, my job, then I'll volunteer for, you know, a couple of years just to see how that goes and ended up doing that volunteering for a couple of years right after I got married in 2010. So from 2010 to almost 2013, I, I volunteered for a few years and that was good. Um, but it kind of went back to the point of the people that were there just weren't quality people. There was only like one or two who really wanted to do the job and wanted to train everyone else. There was extremely overweight and just wanted to sit around and just run a call when the call came out instead of doing and training and learning the, the job that was at hand. So I actually stepped out from that because of that and, decided that, you know what, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be a part of that and associated with that just because there was that stigma, I guess, in the community of, you know, the volunteer firefighters are not up to par, you know, and, and the career guys were that way. So it just kind of threw me off and, and, and drew me out of that. So, uh, but in 2014, I applied to the city of Gwinnett or the, the county of Gwinnett, sorry, and was able to start there uh, in 2015 
And so from 2015 to present, uh, you know, I've been a career fireman. Um, I started with the uh, with, with, with uh, Gwinnett County. And about a little over two and a half years ago, I've made the swap from Gwinnett County to the city of Sandy Springs, which is where I currently serve. All right. Now, why the switch? Um, so for me personally, I love, I love the fire service and, and I, so I'm a firefighter and I'm a paramedic. Um, Gwinnett County is, is dual service. So they, uh, they're fire and transport. So they do EMS, which a lot of places are dual service, but they don't transport Gwinnett County transported. And I didn't, I didn't love being a paramedic as much as I thought I was going to. I knew what I was going to have to do. I knew what I was signing up for. I just didn't realize that when I got into the field that I was going to be riding on a bed unit as much as I was. I thought my time was going to be split pretty evenly between um, the fire side and the EMS side. And it just ended up, I was on a med unit more than I was on a fire engine. And for me, I didn't want to go through my career and that continuing to be the issue that I was facing because I wasn't as ha- happy as, as I wanted to be. Uh, it's a great place to work for. They took great care of us. I got some of the best training I could have ever gotten. But when it came to that point, I just, I found myself not being as happy, you know, when it came down to that. And so I ended up being on a, a med unit, sometimes, you know, seven or eight shifts out of 10 and only getting to be on a, on a fire engine, like two of those shifts. And that just didn't sit well with me. So I decided to, to make a move to where um, I could be at a department that didn't transport. So we still run medical calls. I still get to practice as a paramedic, but I don't have to transport because we have a private transport um, company that does all that for us. Yeah, well, I'm glad that I asked that because I think two reasons. Firstly, there are people that feel like they're stuck at the department. So my thing, I've, I've been through four. <laughs> so basically yeah. geography driven, not that I just you know was bouncing around. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there are people that just aren't happy where they are, you know, and, and we have Gainesville here, who's um, just like you guys are, you know, just uh, they respond, but I think it's uh, Latua County that transports for them, if I'm not mistaken. Um, then funnily enough, uh, Orlando used to be, and then uh, some of my friends even left Orange County where I worked. And we're, a couple of them were even like bo- boasting about not transporting anymore. And then right after they moved, Orlando started transporting, so they were back on the box. (laughs) Careful what you wish for. Um, That's right. But the best system that I've been a part of as a fireman, and I absolutely loved it, was in Anaheim. They they were all suppression units, you know, trucks or um, engines and squads, but all all uh, fireside uh, vehicles. And they had care ambulance, and the crew would actually match with us. So they would do a twenty-four with us. They had their own quarters, but it was all in the station. Um, and so, if it was a BLS call, there was two a- two EMTs on there. They would take the patient to the hospital, and we go right back yeah. into service. If it was an ALS call, the two medics would jump in the back with the EMTs. So you've got three people now in the back, so that's a, a lot of hands. Right. Um, and then the same thing: we would go to the hospital and pick up those two medics. And then go immediately back into service. And I really, really love that because you could be a, a, a medic then. You could actually be on the transport, but you weren't stuck on a transport unit. So the moment you clear the right. hospital, you get a, ca- a structure fire where you're actually in a truck or an engine so you can respond with that crew. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and that's what I love about being where I'm at now is, you know, if there's a need for another medic, 
then, you know, I'll be happy to ride in and do my job and, and, and provide care. But when I get there, I'm able to walk back out, hop on the rig and, you know, get out, which is awesome. It's freeing, you know, um, not being stuck on a, on an ambulance for me anyway, because that's not my first love. And there's a lot of people out there who absolutely love that and, and don't mind, but, um, I definitely love the fire service side of it and, you know, training it in that aspect of it way more than I love the medical side, but I'm definitely thankful for my training and what I've learned. And, you know, it's, um, it's, it's a great, it's a great career. You know, it's, it's been by far one of the, the greatest things that I've been a part of. And I was reflecting on that the the other night while I was on shift, I was just, I was thankful just to be sitting there and, and to have the job and the opportunity to serve the way that we do. Yeah. It is, it is the greatest career. And going back to your dad, though, you know, that's, that's the sad thing, though, is, you know, you can earn more driving concrete to stores than you can risking your life. And that, that's something that needs to change. You know, I mean, none of us have ever entered the fire service to, to get rich, but, you know, the, the, the pay should at least match competitively with other careers so that you don't have to, you know, get second jobs and, and all these other things that we see a lot in our profession. Yes, I agree with that 100%. Right. Well, so just kind of leading you into the profession. So you've gone from 250 down to 190. Um, you're doing CrossFit. What were your kind of orientations like physically for you? You feel pretty well prepared by that point? I did. I had an understanding. Like I said, I volunteered for a couple of years. So I had gained knowledge through that, you know, by far. I mean, knew more than what I wouldn't have known if I'd never made that decision to volunteer. So going into, you know, the academy and things like that, I mean, I was prepared in that way, had an understanding, definitely didn't know everything that I needed to know and learned a lot through that, but physically prepared. Yes. Uh, way, way more prepared than I would have been in 2010 if I'd have gotten the job. So it was definitely a, a good, I guess, transition from you know when i originally applied to when i actually was able to start the job so i'm thankful you know looking back at it that i was able to start when i did because i was definitely way more prepared brilliant right well then let's transition to the next rung when when did you first start becoming aware of mental health and ill health in our profession in our profession, it was when I started in the fire service. I mean, um, I had a, I have an undergrad in psychology, so that's always been an interest of mine. I love counseling. I love just, I guess, how the brain works and interacts and all those different things. But in the fire service, there was, for me, uh, I guess, a, a pivot point is about six months or a year into my rookie, uh, my rookie year as a firefighter. There was a guy that came out of the field. He was an adjunct instructor. So he came out of the field and helped us a lot through my 14 months that I was in fire academy. And I'd gotten to know him, talked with him, you know, pretty often. I mean, he was up there at least once, if not twice a week at times that, that we were there doing a lot with us. And um, he actually ended up taking his life when I was in my rookie year in the fire service. And so that was a big pivot point for me because this was someone who was always laughing and smiling and cutting up, you know, at least from my perspective when I saw him and just really seemed to be a happy person. Um, but 
uh, you know, little did I know at, at that point, there were some really close people around him that, that obviously knew some of the things that were going on. Um, but uh, I remember getting that phone call. I was actually on shift that day, um, that Sam had, had killed himself and just really impacted me and just made me realize that you never know what people are going through. You never know what people are experiencing and just the, the turmoil within. So that was the, the big pivot point for me. I, I knew that I wanted to make an impact in the fire service, um, other than just serving the community that I was serving in. Like I told you earlier, I wanted to make an impact in the people that I served around. So my brothers and sisters, I wanted to, you know, figure out a way that I could, you know, I guess just be there for them. I I didn't know what that looked like yet, but at this point that became, you know, pretty evident. And so I started next rung in 2017 so it took me a little while to kind of figure out where we wanted to go. It brought our co-director on. His name is Charlie Brown. He actually lives out in California, and um, he lives in Ventura County and works for the city of Glendale. But uh, I'd gotten to know Charlie just really through social media, and it brought him on six months into starting Next Strong because I was like, man, I can't do this by myself, so what is this going to look like? And uh, so he and I together made the decision to – really approach and tackle the mental health aspect of the fire service and first responders as a whole. You know, we try to, to dive into the law enforcement side. It's just really a, a different animal. So a lot of what we deal with is going to be fire and EMS dispatchers, you know, who kind of have that commonality there. Um, so yeah, so that was really the big pivot point for me is, is Sam's death and, um, even crazier part is in two and a half years in Gwinnett County, there's actually five suicides from people out of the county. So they're all firefighters and there's five of them in two and a half years. So that just continued to drive, you know, that home for me is like, man, we've got to do something. We've got to make a difference. And uh, I just knew I was like, I, I got to do something, I, you know. And so, like I said, Charlie and I put all this stuff together and we decided that we want to tackle the mental health aspect of, you know, what we deal with because we know that, man, life is, is heavy at times and it's a mixture of, you know, work related things. And then it's a heavy mixture of things that are going on in just your personal life. And we wanted to be able to talk with people and just help them through, you know, whatever it was that they might be going through. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's that's something that's really becoming revealed now. Now, you know, this last statistic, my whole career it was like you know line of duty deaths, and then and then the big thing that was pulled out of that oh, but a lot of these are heart disease, so you know, eat well, exercise, which is absolutely damn right. But now, as as I think of most of our profession, at least is in our arena, the the statistic is we lost twice as many people to suicide as we did other line of duty deaths and I, I consider that line of duty you know it's it's of course going to be related to the shifts and what we see and you know the pressures on family and all these other things that so it is in my opinion all line of duty but yeah these these are probably have always been happening but now this curtain's really being pulled back to reveal the ugly side of you know of what we do right yeah and, and that reporting is there you know i mean you have people like jeff deal with you know firefighter behavioral health alliance that, that they um that's what they do, man. You know, they look at the stuff specifically and they're reporting, you know, people are reporting back finally. But even if you talk to him and 
and which you have, you know, I mean, he says that the numbers are going to be probably 40 to 50 percent higher, maybe maybe even towards 60 of what is actually reported. So, um, you know, we're just we're just seeing bare minimum numbers of, you know, what is actually going on. But I remember in 2017 that that was one of the first years that it was revealed that, you know, suicides in the fire service outnumbered line of duty deaths that year. And, and that was just shocking, you know, and, and really just added more fuel to my fire and desire to, you know, tackle this, this aspect of, you know, what's, what's impacting the people around me that, that we're serving with. Yeah. Yeah. And I think with the physical health and the mes- the mental health, what's really sad is like now on paper, I'm not a fireman. I mean, I'm a fireman. I don't, it's like, I consider firefighting like being a Marine, you know, you, you don't just stop being a fireman. You know, I still have stuff in my car. If I pull over and help someone, I can, I can still give aid. Um, but, but the, the statistics, that's active duty. The moment you're retired, you're not, you're not on any list, any list at all. So the men and women we lose to cancer, to heart disease, to suicide, to addictions, you know, are, are probably exactly like he's saying, like many, many more times than we than we give credit for, because that's the age where these really start to manifest. So right when people are starting to get sick, you know, we cut the cord and like, all right, well, you know, you're not a firefighter anymore, so you don't feature any of our stats, which I think is so wrong. The same way as this coronavirus, you know, they say, oh, this is how many corona you know, people we have. It's like, well, you have no idea. You haven't tested the other people. So your numbers are completely wrong. And it's the same with this. We need to factor in or create a way where we're following people all the way through their retirement as well to get the true effects of, of you know, of the job. Yeah. And I, I completely agree with that. And I think one of the issues is, is that departments don't treasure and value their retired people or you know the people that once served with them as well as they should you know and and to me like there should be something in place and some departments are good at that and some are terrible at it as far as keeping those people involved and thankfully where i started in gwinnett county they actually have a group of retirees that meet together and they actually help other departments form peer support team. So they just give them the information and the knowledge that they need to be able to do that. But I mean, that was one of the issues that they had noticed as well is that it's not just the younger guys. It's not just this younger generation that's taking their lives. It's some of these guys who have been retired for five, six, you know, 10 years and all of it's finally starting to settle in because life is slowing down. And, and a lot of times when we are, are sitting idle, those are when, you know, things start to just erupt within our mind of the things that we've been through, the things that we've experienced. And those all come back to us because we never dealt with those things properly the first time through. And so now you have all these guys that have been retired and they slow down enough to the point where they start thinking about the stuff. And uh, it's just a, an overwhelming sensation and desire that they get and and they aren't sure how to deal with it and they aren't sure who to go and talk to um you know because they they don't have what they used to have and you know going on shift every third day or whatever their schedule was to you know being around those people and being able to forget about that for a moment but now that's all they can think about yeah yeah and there's the tribal element again the same with the crossfit gym you know there's, there's many many men and women that their crew was their crew. Something, you know, some of these these guys that we have in the slower stations, they might be with that crew for ten years, you know. And and one day the bay doors close behind them, and that was it. And they don't have those people 
to say, hey, do you remember that that call we had, that kid, that you know, that fire, whatever it was. And so right. they don't have that support structure now. And that's what worries me is that they are left, you know, many, many of whom probably are turning the to less healthy coping mechanisms like alcohol or, you know, pain pills. I mean, that's just the, the harsh reality. And so we owe it to these people who have given 10, 20, 30 years of their life to our profession to take care of them after the same way as, you know, I mean, there's the, the VA for the military and we have nothing for first responders. Right. Yeah. There's, there's definitely something, you know, missing there. And it's just trying to figure out how do we, you know, continue to guide that in the right direction. Uh, I think what I've realized being in the fire service is that we're really good at being reactive instead of being proactive, which, you know, we, we learn so much from the things that we've made mistakes on, but there are times that, man, I just wish that we could be a little more proactive than, than what we are as a whole, you know? And, and like I said, there are some, entities and departments who are really good at that but across the board as a whole i think we are you know severely lacking in in some of the things that we could be doing for our people yeah yeah and i think that this again this situation we're at the moment the the it kind of reminds me of the fire service like there's so much focus on masks hand washing stay at home you know which is totally reactive what the discussion should be is this virus is mainly attacking the sick immunocompromised you know the the smokers the the diabetics the obese um and there's not a discussion of that well that's the proactive side you don't run from a virus when it shows up you start building a healthy nation that's resilient to an invading army a virus whatever it is but you know we i think what we're really seeing is a very unhealthy nation that's succumbing to mother nature illustrating not only that if you farm and you know your market and farming practices are horrendous you're going to create these diseases in the first place but then the, the the reason that we're seeing a lot of deaths ultimately apart from the very very old is that we have you know a lot of ill health in this country and i think it's the same with with the fire service you can't you don't wait for a bunch of guys to die from cancer before you start understanding clean cab you know I mean, a Travis Howes just posted a picture the other day of hit them in Charleston training in front of a diesel fire. None of them wearing the tanks. And when we look back now, you know, it's we all get it now, and it's, it's actually common sense. And it's crazy that we didn't back then. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So, well, what are you seeing in um, before you started Next Run as far as the tools that you guys had for mental health? Um. I honestly never even knew that we had anything in place. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of departments who have EAPs and, you know, uh, they, they try to utilize that to help them. And uh, for me personally, you know, coming through, I remember, you know, coming through rookie school and being a recruit and then getting into the field. I, I mean, I never knew anything about that stuff and it was never really discussed or, or talked about a whole lot they talked about the SISM team that we had there at the county um, but you know we only heard about that very briefly and they're like hey if you run a bad call there's going to be a team that comes out to debrief you and I mean that's really all that I knew about that and you know finally I decided to dig in just a little bit more and, and figure out some stuff but it wasn't due to the knowledge being afforded to me that I knew about it it was because I actually had to dig in and figure it out for myself and there's so many people with with you know their departments that, that are the same way they either don't 
know that they have something or, you know, I guess they've, they've seen it and they've been a part of it and they don't like the way that it operates or the way that it impacted them originally. So they just kind of, I guess they dump everything, you know, they're just like, I'm just not going to worry about it. If I, if I need something, I'll figure it out on my own because I, I don't, either I don't have the information that I need or I don't feel like this is going to be helpful at all. So I think it's just lack of knowledge and lack of understanding on everyone's side of it. And I think that it's, you know, lack of, of just making an impact within your crew at your firehouse. I think that's where it has to start, you know, and, and, and that's where the greatest impact is actually going to come from is, is with the people that you're working beside every single shift. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm hear that so much. I think that's uh, the two stories I hear is the EAP horror stories, and of course there are EAP good stories as well. I'm not saying everything is terrible, but there's so many people that just went to the wrong council that just made it worse through EAP, yep. and then and then the schism. That's what I remember. Like, if you have a bad call, you can all sit down and talk about it right after the call, and then the, the you know in my career the 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 kind of um, the way that was viewed is and after we're done with that, then everyone's good, and then we'll go back to work. You know, and, and that's, right. as you know, that's so wrong. There's a lot of people don't even want to talk about it right after the call. They need to process it first. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, the whole idea that, that I had with Next Wrong is because I'd heard the EAP horror stories. I still hear them on a consistent basis. I hear that, yeah, everything was going great. I was talking with this counselor and after three sessions, I didn't have anywhere else to go. You know, so they either start them in the right direction and they drop them, which is awful because they open up and they expose all this stuff and then they're just left high and dry to not be able to talk about that again, which is really dangerous, you know, for that person because they've exposed all these um, inner struggles and now they have no one else to talk to about it. And, uh, you know, so I've heard those stories. I've heard, you know, the SISM stories, which SISM teams are great, but where a lot of them tend to lack is they attack at the initial moment, you know, that, that everything has been going on and they come in, they're like, Hey, we're here to talk. Let's, let's do this. And they gather people in a group, which is really uncomfortable to begin with. And then they talk about it for a second and then they're not, heard of again until something else like that happens so there's no follow-up there's no individual time there's no hey if you need something like you don't have to talk about it right now but you can give me a call later and you know people are like well they have our information they have our numbers they know you know that we're here but it's not really how that works and the likelihood of a firefighter no matter what rank they are going to someone and saying hey you remember uh five months ago uh we had that really bad accident. Uh, I need to talk to somebody about that. You know, that's, that's not how that typically, you know, goes. So I think it's, um, you know, I think it's really important that we have something in place where people have information in front of them, obviously, you know, so that they understand that it's there, but that it's, you know, like you said, it's not after the initial incident that happens because I feel like that makes a lot of people very uncomfortable and they're still trying to process through that stuff on their own, you know, at that moment. And the last thing that they likely want to do is talk to someone, especially in front of everybody else. So, you know, I think there's just different ways that we can we could move and progress this, which, you know, again, some departments are doing that and some people are making some really good steps in that. But as a whole, across the board from what I'm seeing, you know, it doesn't matter 
you know, where you are, some people either they just have issues with that team. Um, I've seen it to where they didn't like a certain person who is on that, you know, that SISM team or that peer support team. So it discredits the entire team and they're not going to talk to anyone now. Uh, I've seen it to where they've, you know, made steps to go and talk to the people on that team and somehow that information gets leaked back out and it's gotten back to their crews. And they were confronted about that. You know, I mean, I have stories for days of, of how things have gone poorly. But I've also had, you know, stories where people are like, hey, man, I just want to thank you for being here um, because you continue to raise awareness. And because you offer something that's going to actually help us, I decided to reach out to someone that is local to me. And I just want to let you know that I've gotten the help that I need, but you know, it's all because you continue to talk about this stuff. So, you know, there's different sides to, to every story as to why someone goes one way or the other, but we wanted to offer something that people, you know, no matter what, no matter where they were uh, in this country, that they would be able to call and talk to someone who gets the job and understands, understands the job just like they do, because uh, everyone that serves on our team, we're all active firefighters. And, you know, we're living this life every single day, just like they are. Yeah. And I think you hit on a very good point as well with the SISM team is it's always an, an acute event. So, you know, what we would perceive as a, a bad call, whether it's a, you know, pediatric death or, you know, a nasty multi-vehicle accident or something that, that, that fits the bill. So who falls between the cracks of that is everyone that's just had that chronic, you know, build up the what we would consider normal calls, which is still a huge amount of death for the average first responder, but n- the no, you know, no pulse shootings or any of these these giant events sure. where you normally deploy it. So, though, there's almost a feeling then like, well, I don't, I shouldn't feel like this because I, I wasn't on nine eleven, I wasn't at the Vegas shooting. So, you know, and and those are basically ninety percent of of us anyway. There's very few of us that were there on that shift on that day of that event that made the news. But the, I think that's where the schism fails is they miss everyone else. Yeah, yeah, you're right. There's definitely people who across their career accumulate things either faster or slower, just depending on, you know, what department they're at and which house they're at in that department. You know, because there are some stations that are, are way busier than others and that run way more calls. And it could be definitely, you know, someone who's – in the past three months accumulated like 15 calls or it could be someone over the past five years who's accumulated, you know, five or six calls, you know, that have really weighed on them. And, and then, like you said, there's people who fall between the cracks because it's not necessarily these, um, horrific events that have taken place, but I've had people call and they're like, man, I've been through some really tragic, you know, calls that I've been on and a part of, but, uh, you know, I was running a cardiac arrest on this 78 year old man and I just, I saw his pictures on the wall and I saw his wife break down and this is, this is weighing on me, you know, and, and, and that's a normal, you know, I hate to say it, but that's a normal everyday cough for a lot of us, you know, and, and even for that person. And they just said today, this hit me differently than it's ever hit me before, but no one's going to send out a, a peer support team or a system team, you know, typically on a, a cardiac arrest of a 78 year old person, you know, so it really just depends on the day and the time and, you know, what's going on in that person's life. And, and again, it's, and that's why we say it's, it's not just the job that impacts the person, 
you know, the, the lack of sleep, the calls that we run, yes, those are, are huge factors, but it's also the everyday life. It's also what you're going through in your personal life that really adds into that and creates that mixture and creates that perfect storm of why, you know, today is different than any other day. Yeah, no, exactly. And that, and that's the thing is that people, I think in so many discussions, like, well, what's the factor like with this virus now, you know, oh, it's, it's, uh, you know, the, the elderly, well, then you get younger people. Okay. So that's not the case. And then people are arguing with each other and, and it's like, no, it's, it's multiple layers. So like you said, it's home life, it's, you know, divorce, it's sleep deprivation. It's you know, one of your kids is sick. And then you add the calls and the call load and the organizational stress because your chief's a douche or, you know, whatever it is, these, yeah, these yeah. all compound. They, they each start filling the cup from their own different, you know, nozzles as it were until eventually, you know, it, it, it's overflowing. And it could be some, you know, very mundane event that pushes you over the edge. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we see that, you know, there are so many calls that, that I've taken personally and, and that we've taken as an organization and you just go back and reflect on them and it's like, man, like it's, this the stresses of everything combined together. And, you know, I think there are times where yes, it is strictly just the calls that a person has been a part of because they had a really, you know, just a really, um, crappy time, uh, you know, that, that uh, several, you know, calls have been strung together that were just, you know, chaotic, you know, and, um, awful, you know, I mean, that, I guess that's the best way to put it. And it's just, you know, so those are going to impact that person. But when it comes down to it at the end of the day, it's always a majority of the time, I would say nine times out of 10, it's a mixture of home life you know, everyday life and the mixture of what's going on at work. Because the truth is, is we never have an opportunity to escape it. Because if you're at home, you know, there are calls that have weighed on you and those things might be impacting you, which is also going to impact your family. But then when you're not at home and you're on shift, well, then you're thinking about your family and the issues that are going on there, you know, whether it's a positive or a negative aspect on those things. And so, I mean, there's never really a way to es escape those things. Uh, I mean, you definitely take some of those things from work home with you. I mean, you're not taking office work home necessarily, but you're taking you know, the, the trails of traumatic things that you've been through, those continue to weigh on you no matter where you're at. So, um, you know, it's, it's definitely, definitely different. Um, and something that we just obviously continue to see that there's an issue with, um, because there hasn't been a month or anything that has gone by where we, we don't see someone else taking their life because of it. And so it's just trying to figure out, you know, the best way to, really, you know, transition this whole thing and make this more of a, an accepted idea. And there's been the stigma there for so long because we created it ourselves of, you know, you shouldn't talk about this stuff that you should just really push it to the back of your mind and move on and run the next call. But that can only work for so long, you know, and, and either people are going to find a way to cope with that, uh, typically in a non-healthy way, you know, drinking themselves, you know, until they, can't function and then they end up drinking themselves to death or there's some sort of substance abuse, you know, where we see people taking, you know, drugs from, you know, the drug bags and taking those and using those recreationally at home or, you know, whatever it may be, but they're going to find some way that they're, they're going to cope with it. If they're having marital issues, 
they're going to find, you know, someone else to, you know, fulfill those desires. I mean, we see like, again, it's just this cup that is overflowing and they're trying to figure out like, how do I catch all the overflow that's going on? And, and they can't, you know, and it's because they, they haven't figured out how to function through that stuff. And again, you know, people are going to find a way to cope with it, whether it's a healthy way or an unhealthy way. And depending on where you are in life, you know, that's the choice that you make. Yeah. Well, I want to get to the next one in a second, but just touching on that. So something that kind of uh, started to a thought process that came into my mind, I look back and all the hiring processes I've been in four departments. Yeah, that's a lot of freaking psyche vows for a start. Um, but I look at the money that was spent. So, you, you know, you have these psyche evaluation tests. You have the time you sit down with that psychiatrist or psychologist. You do, you know, a lot of times a polygraph as well. So that financially is a lot of money that's in a pot to pay for that. Um, yet, you know, all those are, are from, from the outside looking in are ridiculous. Like they're, they're checking boxes. So if something happens, you can say, well, I did this and this. It's not really uh, stopping yeah, vetting in a good way, good candidates. You know, I mean, your background check does that. You know, if you if you've done a lot of shitty things, it's going to come up there. I learned, you know, through all these interviews I've done with these amazing people, that childhood trauma is present in a lot of our profession. Not all of us, of course, but people that are hurt want to become a protector. They want to break that cycle. So one of the things that I'm hoping that maybe, you know, might be an idea is taking all that bloody money that we waste on on bullshit, you know, entry tests like, you know, psych tests and, and polygraphs and instead select who you actually want from your background checks, from your written exam, from your, your physical exam. And then when you have that group, put them through some counseling sessions at the front door. So not only can they start offloading some childhood trauma they can also then develop a relationship with a counselor that they hopefully will be able to maintain all the way through their career. So they will immediately have someone that springs to mind when they start hurting. Yeah, I think that's a, a big part of it is we don't hit it at the ground floor. You know, we, we wait too long for some of those decisions to be made before we're like, oh, I think now's a good time. Now that we're five years into this, I think he probably needs some help when you know, if we would have gotten and offered those things from the beginning, like you're saying, then we could have really, man, just made a, a huge impact in that person, you know, as a whole and and hopefully offered them freedom a little bit sooner than what we're trying to now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of now, so transitioning to the next rung, we are where we are. You know, we're, we're here at 2020. We're doing some things in the fire service very well and, and some things we're, you know, clawing our way back to where we should have been a long time ago. Um, but what I'm seeing is, you know, or are, should I say, people like you and, you know, people behind 555 and Sons of the Flag and all these incredible organizations that are rolling their sleeves up despite already being a firefighter, a police officer, a member of the military and saying, this is bullshit. I'm going to do more because, you know, someone has to step up. Um, so I, firstly, I applaud you and, um, and Charlie for for doing that. So tell me about the genesis of Next Rung, and then lead us into you know what you guys actually offer. Yeah, so the the start of it was in 2017, uh, at the beginning of 2017, and I really wanted to create something that I could take some you know of the profit and give it back to an organization who was 
doing something great. And uh, so I went ahead and started everything, was selling T-shirts and hats. I love apparel. Um, and I wear Next Wrong stuff all the time. Uh, so, I mean, it's right up my alley. I love hats. And I was just like, man, maybe everyone else will as well. So started uh, the apparel aspect of it and really just wanted to encourage through that and also be able to give back a little bit of the profits to – uh, you know, some sort of organization who is out making a difference. Uh, but as I got into that and was researching, I didn't ever find anything that I felt was worthy of me giving my money back to. And so six months in, um, uh, I'd had some conversations with Charlie and it really started out via social media. He had actually bought a shirt from me and I remember seeing a video of his, he was, he was, he, he does CrossFit as well. He's a coach and he was in a gym and it was, it was actually wide open. No one else was there. And I was like, Hey man, are you the owner there? He's like, no, I'm not the owner, but I'm a coach here so I can come in and work out when I want to and, and things like that. So we just kind of had some conversations and, you know, I'd seen some of his other stuff and we just had a lot of commonalities and really I ended up just approaching him one day. I was like, man, I know this is strange. I was like, I, I said, but here's kind of where I want to go with this organization. I said, you and I have had several conversations at this point. Um, you know, I really believe for me, like this is where the Lord is leading me to go. And I feel like you would be a good person, man. Like the Lord just really put me on your, on my heart, you know, to, to ask you. So I did that, man. And he had a conversation with his wife and talked about those things. And uh, he decided that he was going to come on board. And so from that point forward, we really started working diligently towards what do we want to do? because the physical health aspect of our job is extremely important. And I was kind of promoting that as well, along with promoting uh, the mental health aspect of things. And we decided like we needed to, to go one way or the other. And we looked at it and, and you mentioned 555 and they've done a great job at tackling the, the physical health of things. So we decided that we were going to move towards the mental health aspect of things because at that point there wasn't anything around that was really approaching that. And we thought that this would be a good way for us to move. And we both had a, a big interest in that. So um, we started filing all the paperwork. We became a nonprofit and we got our 501c3 status by the end of 2017. So 2018 is when everything really kicked off for us as an organization and figuring out where we wanted to go with this. And we both decided that we wanted to talk with people. Uh, we, we like having conversations with people. We loved, you know, being able to share in that with them. So we came up with the idea of we're going to start a helpline that's, you know, answered by Charlie and I. Uh, we have a board of directors as well. And we slowly started adding them on throughout the past couple of years to also answer those phone calls and text messages as well. So that's kind of really where everything developed is, you know, instead of these people, you know, just hearing about how important mental health is and that you should, you know, really take care of yourself because awareness is great. But I always say that, you know, awareness is just empty promises if there's no action to back it up. So we wanted to have something that was going to back that up and say, hey, not only are we talking about awareness and the importance of your mental health, but we want to offer you something in the time that you may need it. So that's when we decided to start a helpline. And we we don't offer or we don't advertise it as 24 hours a day. We say seven days a week because we're all active firefighters and we're all serving in our communities and we have families and things like that. But typically, you know, 
during the day at some point, you know, within an hour or two, someone's going to reply to you, you know, if not way sooner. Uh, I have my phone with me all the time and I always try to make sure that we get someone as they call or they text in, you know, in touch with, with one of our people pretty quickly. So, um, but yeah, that's really how it started. And, you know, we just kind of have developed it from there. We still, we still don't know what the hell we're doing half the time. No, I'm kidding. Join the uh, club. We're still trying to figure. <laughs> yeah, we're really trying to figure things out as we go, and and that's the hardest part. Is so many times, and and I teach a um, a lecture uh, that I go around and I teach um, to different departments or you know to fools groups, fools chapters, and things like that about the art of taking action. And for me, the important aspect of this was was taking action and not waiting until we had everything perfectly together because there's never ever going to be a time in life where things are perfectly together and we understand everything to then, you know, take action. So it's taking action and figuring those things out along the way. And, and that's what we're doing. You know, we, by far don't know everything, you know, that there is to know about how to run a nonprofit, how to properly get all this stuff together. But man, we have learned so much in the past two years and we are still developing and making, you know, positive changes and things that are going to continue to help people in the best way. And, um, uh, the first year that we answered uh, the phone was in 2007 or 2018. We helped a little over 115, um, first responders in 2018, 2019. Last year we doubled that or actually over doubled that number and spoke with over 350, um, firefighters and first responders last year. And, um, you know, this year is who knows what the numbers are going to be. And we're just excited to, to be here and to have something to offer for people to, you know, call or text in uh, text messages is kind of how we get things started. So people can text support to one eight three three next rung it's n-x-t-r-u-n-g but the number is 1833-698-7864 so people text support to that number which is on our website it's on all of our you know social media then after they text support then what we do is we get someone in touch with them so the people that we have a pool of that we just pull from them and say hey can you talk with this person and and that's kind of how it goes down and from that point you know if they would rather have a phone call then that person can call them and have a conversation with them. And, you know, some people just want it to be strictly text message. So, uh, however they want that to, to go down for them, that's, that's what we make happen. And we always just tell them, Hey, we're thankful that you were willing, you know, to share your story with us and that you trusted us enough to do that. And it's just extremely important for us that we, you know, be able to have that conversation with them, at least that one conversation that could possibly, you know, change their life. And, and I can't tell you how many times that one conversation has changed a person's life because we were just willing to, to be there and listen. And also because we are willing to, you know, share in that with them in a sense of we understand the job and we get exactly what they're talking about. And that's not anything against licensed counselors or anything against the, the professional realm of counseling because they are very vital in this and we utilize them a lot. But a lot of times it's that first contact that can make the biggest difference in the world. Yeah. Well, it's like the, the chain of survival that they use in, you know, in, in EMS, you know, the, the, what they call rapid recognition, rapid uh, defibrillation. I mean, I forget what it is, but basically that, because it's been a while since I've done that, but the initial contact, whether it's the, the citizen seeing someone having chest pain or they go down, they grab whatever it is, that's who we are. 
like like you said, if you need EMDR, you're not going to ask your battalion chief. You're going to go to a licensed, you know, um, psychologist or counselor. But you're not going to get there if you don't have that front line. And, and that's what I see with peer support. And, and that might be all that you need. You might never need to go past that. But I think that there's there's a misunderstanding is that they're not masquerading as counselors. They're just someone who already gets it. So you you don't have to worry about being pushed away. These people want you to call them. They are looking to help. They they and they've because they've seen and you know and spoken to so many people, if they're a more experienced team, they will understand exactly what you're talking about and they would have already helped people through that situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and that's the thing is, you know, the more conversations you have, the the more that you learn, the more comfortable you become talking with people and you know, it's, uh, I remember the first person we helped, um, and he was a, a wildland firefighter and, and, you know, my goal and Charlie's goal is, you know, if we could help one person, you know, keep their life and enjoy it. Like that was it. That was it. I, that was what we were here for. And then everything else on top of that is just a plus. And that actually happened in December of 2017, I remember talking with a wildland firefighter who was on the edge of, of taking his life and I was able to talk with him and to get him some help. Uh, I actually connected with him and connected him with uh, Amanda Marsh and we actually got him some really great help and through that was able to see him you know, make a big transition and overcome that stuff. He actually is... Um, I mean, he's got a little, I think it's a little boy now. Uh, it's just crazy to see his life. Like it's blossomed so much since that conversation that we had back in 2017. And to, to be able to watch that and to know, man, like you had a part in that, not, not because it's anything about me, but just to know that, you know, because somebody was there at that moment when they needed it, that they didn't take their life and they actually are enjoying life now and, and seeing you know, how great it can be because they're able to overcome and, and, and make it through the challenges that were in front of them. So that's the biggest part of it. We all want to see that. And there's nothing too small. There's nothing too great that we can't conquer together. And that's what we want people to know is that no matter what it is, you know, if it's bothering you, then let's talk about it. You know, it could be something, you know, that someone perceives as really small you know, but what their perception is doesn't matter. It's all about how you feel and what you need to talk about at that moment. And that's what we're going to, we're going to work our way through. Yeah. And you had a very good point as well with, with the fundraising, um, you know, the beginning of next rung. It's something that I've, I've kind of observed as well is someone, let's say someone does pass away. Oh, we need to, we need to raise money. And I've done that myself, you know, a couple of firemen that we lost in my last apartment, but I, made the focus I sold t-shirts so I made the focus on making really really good quality t-shirts you know and very small profit margin on it for for the fundraising element because those loved ones seeing those shirts being worn still two three four years later was far more important than the thousand dollars that we raised selling them you know what I mean and I think that's what you see a lot these GoFundMes pop up everywhere and I think especially in mental health of course, there are organizations that there's a financial element too that we you know need to help support, but it's the actual physically being there for each other that we're actually trying to spread. So, Sons of the Flag, they, they you know they help bring the burn injured to the best surgeons we have. That's obviously a very definite financial requirement for that. 
but with the mental health, I know you and I were talking before we, you know, uh, when we set this up is yes, of course, there's a fundraising element and we, you know, every organization needs to, to cover costs. But what's more important is you are using that money to basically bring human beings together. And that's the actual mm-hmm. mission. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's what we always tell people is one person is not more, <clears throat> more important than the other. And, you know, Charlie and I have, have always said that if we, you know, had someone come to us and that was the next person that comes to us and they're seeking help, that we will literally drain our bank accounts that we have through next or wrong, you know, to help them and get them the help that they need. So if I had to spend every last penny on the next person who comes through, then by, by all means, let's do it because we want to make sure that they are taken care of. And that's our, that's our approach to it. You know, we don't um, kind of siphon through the money or we don't, you know, split it up to say, well, if we can give this person a little bit or we'll give this person a little bit, but it's whoever comes to us, you know, so whoever comes to us is, you know, getting our full attention and they're, they're going to get the help that, that they deserve because everyone deserves that help. It's not a, a privileged thing. It's, you know, something that, you know, that they need. And, and, and that's our approach is you deserve this help because of the things that you've already given so much of to your community. And, and we want to be there to, to help, you know, with that. So whether that's peer support, you know, which is obviously our, our big number one overall thing that we offer, uh, you know, we, we believe in that a hundred percent, but we also offer financial assistance for licensed counseling and we'll pay for the first cycle of sessions for them. So, you know, if they come in, uh, you know, immediately and say, Hey, I, I really want to see a licensed counselor, then we will help them find someone in their area. So myself and Charlie, we actually research, you know, where the person lives and we find counselors in that area. And then what we do is we call each of those counselors. So we might pick, you know, three, four or five counselors and we'll call each of those counselors, talk to them, let them know who we are and what we're doing. And then we just hear about them. And if they've worked with first responders before, if they have experience, you know, with that and, you know, um, what we do is say, hey, this is what they're struggling with. You know, can you you can you help them? And, uh, you know, so that's been a huge help as well. So, you know, that's one of the things that we make happen is the financial, uh, assistance for licensed counseling there and then finding and actually locating a counselor for them. And then lastly, a part of what we do is, uh, the families that we learn about who have lost a firefighter to suicide, we actually will donate back to that family. So we send a donation check and a care package, and that has a T-shirt in it for the immediate family. So if it's the wife and kids, we send them uh, some T-shirts, some bracelets, you know, uh, just a big care package. It's got a, a challenge point in it. It's got a letter in it and a donation check for them. And we know it's not about the money and they're not expecting that or, or anything of the sorts. But we want to let them know that they have someone who's here for them. And if they need anything over the next days, weeks, months and years, that they always have someone to reach back to. Uh, so if that spouse needs counseling, if those kids need counseling because of the, the trauma that they've been through of losing, uh, you know, a father or, you know, a husband or whatever it may be, a mother or whomever, then we'll help them, you know, get the help that they deserve as well. Yeah, that's amazing. It really is. So, well, for people that do want to support, because obviously, like I said, you, there is a financial element to what you're doing, even though you know, the impact is more of a human side um how can people donate to you guys 
Yeah. So we have a platform called our Change Lives campaign, and it starts at $3 a month. You can go to our website, and our website is uh, nextrung.org, N-E-X-T-R-U-N-G dot O-R-G. And it's one of the tabs up at the top. I think it's the first or second one, uh, and people can go and they can click on that. And it explains where the money goes and and how we utilize our donations. So all of our donations go back to helping those things specifically, the peer support, the financial assistance for licensed counseling, and then the donations that we give back to families and uh, everything that we offer is free. We don't we don't charge for anything. We don't charge for the peer support, but we do utilize that money to continue and further our training and understanding and what we're doing because there's always more that we can learn. You know, to be able to take that back and utilize that when we are speaking. You know, with our, our brothers and sisters that call in, and then obviously, you know, counseling can be rather expensive, and some people don't have insurance. Uh, some people don't have the ability to pay for that. And then, you know, we want to make sure that they have every reason to say yes to getting the help that they deserve. So, you know, I mean, a, a session for counseling can really vary anywhere between $75 to $150. And like I said, we pay for that first cycle of sessions for people. Um, and so that that varies as well. That could be somewhere between $800 to $2,000, um, just depending on what they need. So all that money goes back to helping those things specifically. And it starts at $3 a month. And, and that was because we wanted it to be fun for people to give back. And we didn't want it to be a burden on them, especially during times like these. Uh, I mean, it's less than a cup of coffee that people can donate every you know single month to us. And all that money goes back specifically to you know helping the people who come in and are seeking the help that we, we offer for them. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Um, I want to transition to the closing questions. The first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be something related to what we've discussed or something completely different. So one of the, for me personally, uh, one of the, the books that that really impacted me, I guess, recently, and this was it's by an author called, his name is Mark Batterson, and it was Play the Man. Uh, and so this book just talks about the, the role that we play as <clears throat> fathers in our children's lives and being, you know, who we need to be as fathers. I think more than anything, you know, my family pushes me to, to be the best that I can be, um, to be the best that I can be for them, to be the best that I can be for other people. Uh, but that, that book is probably one of the first books that I've read in a, a while that I read fully through and was really excited to pick it up and, and read through it every single day. Um, but yeah, so Mark Batterson played the man again, you know, that's, that's for me, uh, as being a father and, and being a husband and, and being a man in this world and, um, you know, just being who, who I'm designed to be and, and showing that to the people around me that are obviously really important to me, but just the people in life in general that I want to have an impact on. Brilliant. That's a good, good recommendation. I think I've had that recommended once before, um, but I'm going to have to look that back up. So thank you. Um, what about a movie? A movie you love? Oh, let's see. Trying to think of what my favorite movie is recently, man. I, you know, really anything action packed, but um, I'm trying to think uh, what I've seen recently. We watched Onward last night with the kids, man. That's kind of what comes to the top of my to the top of my mind at the moment. Um, 
that was a really good movie. I, I love watching movies with my kids, man, just because they get so excited. My my son is he'll be five next week. My daughter's eight. So anytime that I can, you know, watch a movie with them and um, that one was just really family oriented. So I love stuff like that. Um, but really, man, any type of sci-fi, um, you know, movies like that, I, I love as well. So we, we love Star Wars around this house. You know, we're really big into that and like that kind of stuff. But I'm trying to think, man, I don't think 21 Bridges, I think, was one of the, the movies that I watched recently. That was really good. We watched that at the firehouse the other day. Um, but I don't really have anything that comes off the top of my mind that, you know, is amazing at the moment. <laughs> Brilliant. No, that's good. That's good. That's, it's funny how many people do recommend kids' movies. I think the the Pixar and all those companies have done a great job of making films that are good for kids. But yeah. The, the hidden humor that's for parents too. Yeah, no doubt. Right. So next question. If Is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Uh, yeah, man, there's one guy that specifically I think of at the moment. Um, and you talked about working at Anaheim. His name is Matt Fiorenza. Do you know Matt? At oh, all? yeah, we're good friends. Yeah, I don't. Uh, has he has he been on here yet? He hasn't yet. He was on. Um, I do. I did the Dark Side project. It was a Facebook page. Yeah. Um. So he did a video when he was middle of crisis, and then another one when he was after saw. But no, I've been meaning to get Matt on. I want to do that face to face. So when I go over to Anaheim. Yeah, Matty's an awesome, awesome guy. I love him. I got to to meet him for the first time last year. Charlie knows him really well, and uh, you know the things that he's involved in. Man, he's he's. God, he's he's a big hitter, man. He's he's making a, a big difference and probably making more of a difference than he would ever give himself credit for. But we we love Maddie a lot and and think very highly of him. Brilliant, yeah. So yeah, next time I'm out in California, I want to sit down with him. Um, but I want to do it face to face because I know I will be seeing him at some point. So thank you yeah. for that. Um, all right. Then the last question. This is more important for for well, not more important, more pertinent. I think to to people with you know peer support counseling that kind of background, because a lot of times you are the shoulder for other people, and again you are also a firefighter and you're also a human being, so that self care I think is very very important for those that are reaching out to other people. So what do you do to to decompress, take care of yourself? You know we hit on a, you know a good bit earlier, but man it the gym is kind of where I find my, my refuge in a sense of, you know, my physical and mental health, because I think the two are so, um, tightly interwoven together. Uh, because if you, if you take care of yourself physically, it really does a lot for your mindset. And if you're taking care of your mental health as well, man, it just helps you be, uh, motive. It helps you to, to, to be motivated to, to do things, you know, to take care of yourself physically. I really believe that the things that, that those two offer together are, you know, extremely important and really they, they are really tightly interwoven together. So if you feel good about yourself, then you're going to want to work out, you know, and, and if you're working out, then you feel better about yourself. So uh, I think those are, are really important. And then also for me, you know, my faith in Christ is a huge part of that. <clears throat> that's not something that we force on people, you know, through our organization. But I would say that probably eight to nine times out of 10, that comes up in conversation, you know, and people ask me about that. So that's a big part for me is, you know, really, you know, just targeting, you know, my, my physical health and my mental health through being 
you know, physically fit and, you know, feeding, feeding my body, the things that it needs. And then my faith in Christ is also a huge part of that. Right. Now, what do you think the impact is of the churches being closed at the moment? You know, it's, um, it's hard. I, I mean, I've seen it, you know, impact my family and, and, you know, just the, the community that we have there is so great and so vital and, and helpful for us on, on a weekly basis. Um, but, uh, you know, even with the churches being closed, you know, what we have seen is just the, the huge rally of, of all the churches, either, you know, through social media, you know, uh, sharing their, their messages through there and their church services through that. I mean, there's really, there's really not a whole lot that can really kind of keep that at bay. Um, where there's a will, there's a way, and we're always going to find a way to to be able to meet together and have you know our our time together and share in God's word. So I think that's really cool just to see you know everyone you know sharing that more openly right now. Uh, I can't tell you how many people on you know my news feed through through Facebook or Instagram like they've been sharing their church services and things like that, which is you know exciting and really cool for me <clears throat> to to be able to see that and to watch that. Yeah, yeah, because it looks like another double-edged sword. You are seeing a lot of people rallying behind, you know, behind their churches. I'm sure people are still tithing. You know, you see the same with, yeah. you know, local businesses and and all kinds of things, local gyms. You know, trying to do the virtual coaching. Um, but I think it also is making people realize the value of that community, that tribe, when this thing is lifted Absolutely. again. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think that's going to be a huge part in all of this. Is you're going to see hopefully the, the local communities, you know, explode after this and, and, you know, really see people rally around their local businesses, their churches, their, their gyms or whatever it may be, because people miss that stuff. It's things that you take for granted until you're in a position like this. And, and that's what I was telling, we serve the students at our church and, you know, we've had some of our seniors that aren't going to be able to have their graduations and things like that, which is, man, like that's, that's a huge impact on them but you know you, you don't expect the stuff and it's just trying to take the things that you go through you know which is a huge part of next rung for me is the things that i've experienced and that i've gone through like man for me i believe that god is going to utilize those things for me to be able to impact the other people around me so anything and everything that i go through i know that there's a purpose behind it because i'm able to share that with other people and impact them because of that story so i, I think this is going to be the same way you know this is a story that we are going to be able to utilize and impact the people around us hopefully in in the best way possible yeah i agree 100% well i want to i want to thank you so much for you know telling a story and and you know, what you've done with Next Rung. Before we actually sign off, let's just go over the, the text number again and the website to make sure everyone knows exactly, you know, what to text and where and then how to find and donate. Yeah. So our number that people can text if you text support or if you want to text info to get more information about Next Rung and what we do, the number for that is 1-833-698-6666. Brilliant. And support is actually for help, yeah? Yes. If you text support, then we are going to get someone to contact you back through text message. And if you want to have a phone conversation after that, 
then you can determine that with the person that you're speaking with. But by people texting us support, it allows us a moment to get someone lined up with them. And it just makes things move so much smoother for us. But if you also text info, then myself or Charlie will get back to you and answer that question that you may have if you're just seeking more information about what we do. And then our website is www.nextrung.org. Again, it's N-E-X-T-R-U-N-G.org. And so that has all of our apparel there. Um, <clears throat> we do something that we call Green Monday. And so every single Monday we wear green to raise awareness for the mental health aspect of the fire service. And um, we wanted to do that so that we weren't just doing that one month out of the year. Because in May is you know Mental Health Awareness Month, but I wanted to, uh, to, to do something a little bit more. So we decided to... to pioneer something that we call green monday and so every single monday you're going to see us wearing green and posting about that and people tag us in all their stuff which is awesome so we have apparel on our website and we are actually due to get a lot more stuff in but because of the virus everything's been you know very chaotic as far as that goes but hopefully in the next couple of weeks we're going to be restocking a lot of our apparel our shirts and hats and things of that nature so um anyway so that's kind of how we tell our story uh you know with our apparel is a lot of things that we have ha- of the things that we put on the website are green and we allow people you know to to be able to purchase those things and help raise that awareness with us brilliant yeah the only thing i'm adding to my um merch is the new tiger king emt jacket that i'm going about to release so (laughs) (laughs) that is awesome man i love it i love it (laughs) no i wish i could but i'm not (laughs) um all right so yeah i just want to say thank you thank you for coming on the show but also thank you for just being one of the people that saw a problem in the world and rather than just ignore it or bitch about it you actually stepped up and became part of the solution so I think what you guys are doing incredible. It's funny because when you talked about initially using the merchandise to raise money, I think that's where we first kind of cross paths on, on social media. And then, yeah. you know, then the next time I kind of reconnected, I realized that you had shifted to to basically taking the range yourselves. I think that was a, a, a very, very good decision because you have the background too. You have the 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 um, faith-based background. You have the psychology background, obviously the actual profession as well. So yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to tell your story. Yeah, man. Thank you again. I greatly appreciate the, the opportunity just to share a little bit about what we do and, you know, hopefully just, you know, every, every person that we come in contact with be able to, you know, make a difference in their life and, so for anybody out there, if you, if you ever need anything, please don't hesitate to reach out and get in contact with people, you know, like James as well. I mean, they're going to point you in the right direction for those resources. And we're definitely grateful for that. So again, thank you as well for taking time out of your schedule to allow us to, you know, share a little bit about this and about ourselves. And we appreciate what you do as well by telling the stories of so many incredible people. 